0: We have a big crowd this morning. I think that's because he's on the podium. <laughs> I've tried to disabuse him of that notion. I say it's because managing absences is one of those things that we all struggle with. Um, managing genuine absences is one thing. But as a team, and we have a big practice in Mason Hayes, but as a team we get asked a lot about you know, what happens if I suspect an is not genuinely sick. And then we have the propensity to submit medical certs when somebody is the subject of a disciplinary procedure. Or you get a, a sick search when there's a complaint about somebody, or when they are the complainant, and what happens the process? Can you continue the disciplinary procedure? Can you continue the bullying investigation? Is it suspended? What do you do about it? And it's one of those things that comes up again and again and again. And sometimes there's no right answer. Sometimes. It's a matter of degree, sometimes it's very subjective. We're going to try and give you some tips for dealing with those kinds of questions. We don't have all of the answers, um, but we're going to walk you through what good practice is in terms of managing absences. And is going to talk to you about that age-old question. Can you terminate somebody who's absent as a result of illness? Um, And that's what we're talking about today, sickness-related absences, as opposed to somebody on study leave or somebody on sick leave or maternity leave. Today is about sickness-related absences. Um, And we're doing it because it's one of those things, and you'll all get a survey monkey this afternoon, it's one of those things that we keep getting asked about, um, and we get asked about repeatedly. So hopefully after the next 45 minutes or so, you'll have some questions, maybe we'll answer them all in (laughs) advance, but hopefully you'll take away some tips that will help you manage the issues when you get back to your respective organisations. So, everyone's going to start, She's just going to talk you through how you manage absences, what your policies should say, what you should do, um, and then Jerry's going to talk, and after that we'll have some time for some questions and answers.
1: Good morning. I think we could spend all day talking about sick leave, um, it must be one of the most frustrating topics of managing our workforce Um, and sick leave is definitely a problem in Ireland. Now obviously everybody gets sick from time to time and in any given workplace there will always be somebody for a few people who are out because of an illness or an injury and that's absolutely fine. But we seem to be all too familiar with the scenario where you have an issue with somebody's performance which leads to an invitation to a disciplinary meeting, and next thing you know, you get a medical certificate which says that they'll be out of work on work-related stress, and unsurprisingly, they can't attend your meeting. Um, The most recent findings that we have from IBEC show that 11 million days are lost every year to sickness absence, and that costs businesses €818 per employee. And that cost is nothing compared to the cost that you could end up facing if you badly manage and badly exit an employee. Because if an employee successfully claims that they were discriminatorily dismissed or unfairly dismissed because of their absence, um, well you could end up having to pay up to two years gross remuneration in the Workplace Relations Commission. So apart from the obvious cost that absence can have on a business, it can also be very damaging for, for an employer for other reasons. It can lead to a loss of efficiency, um, it can put strain on other co-workers. you know, because it, it means them having to deal with a bigger workload, and it can really affect morale. It can be very demotivating for a team if somebody is in and out on sick leave, and then when that person does eventually return, um, it can really affect the status quo of the team. So to manage scenarios like this, it's really important that you have very clear terms and conditions in place whether in your policies or in your contract about how sickness absence is actually managed in your business. Um, And I will get into what those policies or contracts should look like in a minute. But it's interesting to see um, the way that some other organizations have tried to monitor or reduce their level of sick leave in their business. Um, Some employers offer extra holidays or an incentive payment even for employees who don't take any sick leave in a given year. Um, Tesco a couple of years ago managed to significantly reduce their number of sick days by offering an extra two days annual leave to employees who didn't take any sick days. Now I think they have since changed their policy but it, it was interesting to see that it, it worked for them at the time. Something which is used a lot in the UK is the idea of self-certified leave and I think this is creeping into Irish workplaces as well whereby the employees required to fill out a form um, and explain why they were out, what they were suffering from, and give various details on their return. In the same vein, then, you have the idea of return-to-work interviews, whereby the employee is required to attend a meeting with their manager or the HR manager on their return um, to go through the nature and and duration of their illness. So something like that, I think, could put certain people off having to, or could put people off, you know, ringing in sick on a Monday for a Dubai day. So regardless of how you want to manage or monitor um, or reduce your your number of sick days, as I said, it's really important that you have a well-thought-out, comprehensive policy um, on how sickness absence is actually managed in your business. And not only that, but it's vital that your employees are actually aware of this policy. I know we always make the point, but there's no point having a beautifully drafted policy at the bottom of your drawer. You have to give it to your employees, make sure they're aware of it, and put it on your internet if you have one. Um, So you should review your policies or we can certainly do that for you to make sure that they cover off a couple of different things. So first of all, how to report sickness absence. So an employee should be required to notify a specific person by a specific time and in a specific way. So for example, um, your clause might say you are required to contact your manager or the HR manager by phone, not text message within 30 minutes of your start time, informing them of the reason for your absence and the likely duration of that absence. Um, You might also specify that if somebody is on extended sick leave, that they're required to keep you updated on a weekly basis, for example, um, of their illness. So you can plan accordingly. It's really important that the rules also cover certifying sickness absence. So medical certificates should take a certain form and again, should be provided by a certain day I have a dedicated slide to that, so I'll come back to medical certificates. Um, other details that should be included are, well, in the case of an extended absence, um, you may require the person to provide a certificate of their fitness to return to work. Sick pay is obviously a really important part. You may even have a separate policy on that, but if not, that should be included in your in your sick leave policy, and again, I'll come back to that. Um, you might cover, you know, or you should cover that an employee should be required to attend a medical assessment at your request and on that point it's really important that you have the right to send somebody at any stage, not just if they're on long-term sick leave or or if they have a a long-term illness. Um, You might also cover details of return to work procedures so, you know, um, to establish if there are any factors which contributed to the the person's absence such as a bullying incident or an accident at work. and finally then, it's worth mentioning what will happen if the person doesn't comply with these rules. Um, so for example, you know, a link to your disciplinary procedure um, and when it may need to be invoked. So as I said, it's really important that you have clear terms and conditions in place about any pay entitlements that an employee has while they're on sick leave. Um, there is no statutory obligation to pay an employee while they're on sick leave in Ireland although employees might qualify for certain social welfare benefits um, in certain circumstances. But plenty of businesses do offer discretionary sick pay schemes or contractual sick pay schemes whereby they might decide to pay an employee for 10 days or three weeks or even six months. So you really need to carefully think about the wording in your sick pay scheme or or, or plan um, so that there's no doubt about what an employee is actually entitled to. And this is particularly important if your sick pay scheme has a discretionary element. You need to be really careful about referring to any kind of timeline unless you're absolutely committed to paying sick pay for that entire time. So to give you an example, if you have a clause that says, at the company's discretion, we will pay you up to 10 weeks sick pay. There's an argument that by referring to those 10 weeks that you've already exercised your discretion and now that all employees have a contractual right to those 10 weeks sick pay. So you're probably better off not mentioning any kind of uh, time period unless you're absolutely willing to pay that. Make sure as well that you have a cap on your sick pay if that's actually what you intend. So if it's the case that you generously offer 6 months sick pay, well then make it clear that that is in a a rolling three-year period or four-year period or whatever it is so that if a person is out for three years, they're only getting six months sick pay in that entire time, and not six months every year. And um, even where you do have a very defined sick pay policy in place, if it can be shown that there is a custom and practice in your business of paying employees a certain level, so even if your sick pay says it's purely your your scheme says it's purely discretionary and you don't mention any kind of um, timeline, if there's a custom and practice, well then employees could be contractually entitled to that level um, because it could be deemed to be implied into their contracts. Now, an employee can't just turn around and say that they're entitled to a certain level just because one or two other employees have received (coughs) that level in the past. They would have to show that that certain level was so well known and so obvious and so consistently paid that anybody would have expected to receive that. So that can be um, quite difficult to show. If an employee does feel that they are entitled to a certain level of sick pay and they're not getting it, well, then it is open to them to bring a claim to the Workplace Relations Commission um, under the payment of wages legislation. Um, And they might even try this where your sick pay scheme is discretionary. Jure and I had a case a couple of years ago at this stage where the client had a very clear discretionary sick pay scheme in place which said that the company's sick pay is purely discretionary and is not contractual entitlement. It didn't mention any kind of timeline or time period as to when how long sick pay would be payable. Um, notwithstanding that, uh, an employee brought a claim alleging that she was entitled to eight months sick pay just because one other person had, had received that level. Um, it turns out that he had a life-threatening illness, whereas she did not. Um, now, she didn't win her case, but it does show that you know, employees will, will chance it, even where your, um, your sick pay scheme is discretionary. Um, I said to come back to medical certificates, we have lots of questionable stories about um, medical certificates but the one that always sticks in my mind is one that we came across a couple of years ago um, which says, put it up here, the GP believes that the employee is unfit for work due to overwhelming symptoms. So none of us had any idea what that meant Um, and to avoid getting a certificate as vague as this, it's really important that you have clear terms and conditions in place about what form medical certificates should take. So again, your policy or your contract um, should require a couple of things. Um, It should require that medical certificates are provided by a certain day, so for example the third day of absence and on a weekly basis if the person is going to be out for a longer time, that it's from a qualified medical practitioner, not just a a trainee doctor who's a pal of the employee. that it contains certain details, so the name and address of the doctor, the name and address of the patient, and the doctor's opinion as to the nature and extent of the person's illness or injury, the expected duration of the absence, the date that the certificate is issued, and it should also have the doctor's signature and not just a stamp from the clinic. Um, I think it's also worthwhile for the policy to to say that a failure to produce medical certificates in this way may lead to you invoking your disciplinary procedure or the withdrawal of sick pay. Another point to note, which might seem very obvious, um, is that you should specify that a medical medical certificate is provided in English. And I know that might seem mad, but again, you know, we had a case a few years ago where a supposed medical certificate was provided, um, which seemed to be stamped with, like, a clinics or a, a doctor's stamp, But when it was eventually translated, it turned out to be a Polish social welfare form and not a medical certificate at all. So, again, very important that you insist on these certificates (coughs) being provided in English. Now, having said all that, while these are things that you ideally should be getting and absolutely you should be requesting, um, these requests have to be balanced against the very clear professional obligations of medical practitioners, particularly in the context of patient confidentiality. Um, and that is a balance that it can be difficult to achieve and which it's an obligation which medical practitioners are very eager to, to comply with, obviously. So while it is information that you can request and you should request, if consent isn't forthcoming, you might just need to bear that in mind in terms of how you subsequently manage um, the employee. I just briefly want to mention um, the relatively new rules on the impact of sick leave on annual leave. so. Well, they're not new rules at all, I suppose. It was the 1st of August 2015 that the rules came in. So since that date, employees can accrue um, statutory annual leave while they're on long-term certified sick leave. So they do have to be producing proper medical certificates. They have to be certified. And the rules apply to statutory holidays only, not any contractual annual leave that an employee might have on top of that. So where an employee can't take their holidays because of sick leave, they are entitled to carry... Um, their holidays for 15 months after the leave year. Um, I'll give you an example, um, because I know it can be difficult to to get your head around. Um, So we'll say that John has 25 days holidays in a year. He has 20 statutory days and 5 contractual days under his contract. He's on certified sick leave from the beginning of January 2017 until the end of December 2017, so he's out for the full year he is entitled to carry his 20-day statutory holidays until the end of March 2019. So he carries them for 15 months following the end of the the holiday year, but he loses his five contractual days. Um, I think it's still worth mentioning in your contract that employees will only accrue statutory holidays uh, during any period of long-term certified sick leave. (coughs) You're all going to need to send your employees to, for medical assessment at some point uh, to assess their fitness for work. And unfortunately, it's not as straightforward as simply telling the employee that you've made an appointment with Dr. Joe Blogs for a certain date and a certain time, and away they go. There are a couple of rules that you have to be mindful of to make sure that you're not seen to be influencing the doctor's opinion, um, because an employee's right to fair procedures extends to any information that you give the doctor and also to any subsequent assessment Um, and the big case on this point is Delaney and the Central Bank of Ireland and there a senior employee was referred for psychiatric assessment by the bank because the bank had concerns over his mental health and the bank psychiatrist found that he was suffering from a paranoid personality disorder and um, the bank refused to allow him to come back to work on foot of that report. In preparing for the assessment um, the psychiatrist had been sent various documents and a background brief in relation to the employee's history. But the employee himself wasn't given a copy of these documents Um, and even when the employee came looking for them, even when his his solicitor came looking for them, the, uh, the bank said no, we're not giving them to you, they're legally privileged the real nail in the coffin here was that the briefing letter that had been prepared and sent to the psychiatrist had actually been drafted by somebody who was the subject of a complaint by the employee so there was a real question of bias there and in the high court the employee said look he had no problem actually going to the assessment he had freely consented to that he had no problem with it but he did have an issue with being um denied to be able to return to work solely on the basis of this psychiatrist's report when his own doctor's opinion had been that he was actually fit for work. So he felt that that was unfair and that the bank had improperly influenced um, the psychiatrist in his opinion. And the court agreed with the employee, they said yes the process was tainted um, and that he had been denied his right to natural justice and fair procedures and they ordered that he be put back on the payroll. So. If you are going to send employees for medical assessment and you you are all going to need need to do that at some point, make sure that your employment policies are very clear in relation to the right to send somebody. As I said, make sure you have the right to send people at any stage and not just if they're on long-term sick leave. Be clear about the reason for referring the person. So in most cases that will be to assess their fitness for work. Make sure that any material you give to the doctor Um, is also given to the employee to allow them to adequately prepare for um, the assessment. Make sure that any material you give to the doctor is very factual, is relevant and non-biased. And, you know, give clear instructions to the doctor. You're the ones paying for the assessment, so don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, You know, what is the employee suffering from? Uh, When will they be in a position to return to work? Will they ever be in a position to return to work? What kind of duties will the person be capable of doing? Again, these are questions which you should ask but have to be balanced against a doctor's duty of confidentiality. Um, And if the employee has made complaints about their manager or other employees, needless to say, don't involve those people in the referral process. Keep them out of it. If it's the case that the employee's doctor's opinion conflicts with your own doctor's opinion, well then you are going to probably have to get a third independent medical opinion. And most importantly, make sure you're getting the employees consent to the assessment. But not only that, you need to get their consent to what is going to happen to the medical results or the medical report and who's going to to see those those results or or reports. Um, Medical results, remember, constitute sensitive personal data. So there are data protection rules to, to take into account in this context. And the Data Protection Commissioner is becoming increasingly strict about employers' handling of this kind of data. And one of our clients experienced this at first hand a couple of years ago. They sent an employee for for a medical assessment, um, and the results of that assessment were sent to the employee's manager, which seemed fair enough. The manager was the one who was trying to figure out what kind of adjustments would be needed to the employee's duties, you know, what he was capable of doing. He needed to figure out um, how to bring him back. You would think that's fairly reasonable, but the Data Protection Commissioner didn't like this. She said, no, the employee had not consented to the manager seeing these results, so um, the, the results should never have been given to that manager. And that just seems ridiculous. You know, how is a manager meant to reasonably accommodate somebody if they can't know what the person is actually capable of doing and what, what adjustments are required? is going to talk a bit more about reasonable accommodation, so I'll leave that to him. Um, but my top tips for today, unsurprisingly, make sure you have a clear policy in place or clear terms and conditions in your contract about how sickness absence is actually managed in your business. Have a very clear sick pay scheme in place and bear in mind, you know, the points about any, if you have a discretionary scheme. Um, make sure you insist on a proper, complete medical certificate. Again, bearing in mind um, a duty's doctor of confidentiality, but I think it's still worth asking for certificates to, to take a certain form. Make sure you have the right to send employees for medical assessment at any stage and if you are sending employees for medical assessment, make sure that you give any documentation to the employee that you're giving to the doctor um, and make sure that documentation is non-biased and very factual. So I will leave it there and I'll hand you over to jer
2: It's a little bit tight over in our section. Um, Terminating the contract of employment on the grounds of absence and incapacity its probably one of the most difficult areas at this moment in time. And I'm going to answer my own question. Is it possible? The answer is yes, of course it's possible. Um, but it is difficult. There is no point in saying otherwise. And um, it, it, it is fraught with danger. And the reason why it's fraught with danger is that mistakes have been very harshly treated by both the WRC and the courts in recent years. And there's a logical reason to it, of course, is that you're effectively shooting Lassie. You have brought an employee, the chance of them getting in another job is quite small. If you think of conscious bias or unconscious bias, when a person comes into an interview and they're in a wheelchair, we simply, whether we like it or not, we consciously bias that mm, can this person actually, or is our building adaptable to the person? So when you have a person in a job and they suffer an injury or they suffer a disability, the court is very conscious of the fact that this is the job that they will do their utmost to keep them in because when they go back into the job market it will be difficult to simply get a new job and this trend goes all the way through all, all the cases is that should the employer be doing more and more and more in order to get the person back into into work uh, it took me a long time to get that picture in there right <laughs> um, why is it so difficult why is it so difficult it simply is that you are there's no definition of what's sick leave long-term sick leave people have different views. We've had clients ring us up and say, Avril's been out for three weeks, she's got to go, she's on long-term sick leave, Um, which is a bit harsh. We have other people who say, for like a US multinational would see long-term sick leave as if you slip into over three months absence, whilst other people would say, the more prudent view as long-term sick leave, if the person is absent for a year, a calendar year. And I would tend towards that latter stage that you'd have to be absent for around a year. If the person is really senior, a if the person is really seer, uh, senior, maybe CEO, things like that, yes, absolutely there is exceptions to the general rule. but I think you' would have to in general think that a person is on sick leave for um, at least six months. Um, you are entering into a six month process. Anyone that thinks that this is going to be done in a few weeks is is wrong and they are rushing themselves. in fact, if you do it in under six months, high five fist pumps on the way out because I think it takes an awful lot longer. Um, you will also, as Arvill pointed out, because incapacity is linked to medicals, very few of us are uh, HR managers and doctors. Uh, they don't, they're not a natural blend. Uh, you end up having to engage with medical experts, third-party experts, and doctors differ and patients die. We all know the rules. If you go to a doctor tomorrow morning, you probably get a medical certificate to say, I am stressed. Uh, your, your own doctor wants to be favourable to you, and how often do we see the medical report? Ger's not great at the moment, but if you come back in three months, he could be a lot better. There's always the expectation of, and doctors are very slow to actually say, it's the end of the road for this individual, and again, it goes back to uh, the, the concept of, should we try to keep the person in their role for as long as possible before we, we, we bring it to the next stage? Um, The avenues of redress open to employees are two, which is under the Employment Equality Acts and under the unfair dismissals. Uh, It's very frustrating. Um, Some clients just think this is grossly unfair that an employee has can have a number of avenues to bring their claim, and they can tie a company up in knots for actually years. It's not for even with the new WRC system, it can roll and roll and roll for years. Uh, And whether. I know fifty percent of the room would say it's wrong, while fifty percent of the room would say it's right. Lots of cases start out in the old Equality Tribunal, went on to the, um, um, to the, which is now the WRC. They go on to the Labour Court, and cases that we're going to touch upon today have ended up in the High Court. So you have cases to do with disability that's been litigated on three times. The costs are astronomical by the time you weigh up. What actually was at stake when you started out, which was whether or not the person should actually stay within their job or whether or not the person has been badly treated. Some people will say when you are relying on a statute, and a statute of course is a creature of the government and a lot of the, this, this legislation is driven by the EU, the case, that the, the main case at the moment that we're, we're talking, that we're going to talk about today is actually the interpretation that the, the, the government adopted when it, it looked at the EU directive. And in the High Court, there was lots of debate over whether or not what the directive said versus what, the, um, what the, acts, the, the, the Employment Equality Act actually says. And when you strip it back to the basics, it's very unfair in an employer when you think about it that you've actually got to that level of sta- that stage saying, we are now in the High Court facing extremely, uh, extremely lengthy and uh, expensive days about how does... A directive turn into an act and how is it actually how is it implemented within a place of work. But therein simply so for, so therein lies probably the difficulty but also probably the benefit of having to uh, being able to litigate what is uh, the points in question. Um, Nanoneagle is the case I'm talking about. um, um is the case that is dominating sick leave at the at the moment, and incapacity, it's very it's it's well worth a read. Not the longest case you'll ever ever read, but the case itself, and we'll touch upon what the because it ran to two separate arguments, um, and it, it comes up with a, a result that we probably we, we may or may not agree with. But there's also a kind of a carrot that's dangled at the end, which we're not really sure where it's going. But the thing about the Nano Nagel case is that Miss Daly was awarded forty thousand, not for the, the not for the school uh, um, failing to give her reasonable accommodation. She got forty thousand for the school not considering re, re, uh, considering reasonable accommodation. So it's just the fact that they made a mistake when they were assessing the situation, as opposed to what reasonable accommodation she actually could do. At the end of the case, the judge openly says, we don't actually know whether Miss Daly uh, can, or can or cannot come back to work, but that's not the point of the case. The point was how the school assessed the reasonable accommodation. The case itself was one of these cases that started out in the Equality Tribunal, went to the old Employment Appeals Tribunal, and went to the High Court. So it just shows again how these cases can snowball. The other part, and just it's not there, but Melanie uh, thankfully reminded me, permanent health insurance. Some of you will have permanent health insurance, some of you will not have permanent health insurance. Permanent health insurance, of course, it's a contractual promise at the start of your contract when you are fit and healthy that if you go on sick leave or a long-term sick leave, we have an insurance policy in place. The insurance policy is not a company insurance policy, it's an insurance policy that the company has entered into with one of the big insurance providers. Irish Life has dominated the market for, for years on it and people will say that, you cannot dismiss people who have, are, who are on permanent health insurance because you are breaching the contract. You promised that if they were sick that they could get access to this scheme. When they meet the criteria of the scheme, why would you dismiss them because you have openly breached their contract and probably a percentage of their salary. Sometimes it's two-thirds, 50%, and it drops down. I've seen over the last number of years a variation of the schemes. But in general, if you are unfit for work and you get onto these schemes, which are assessed on a regular basis by the insurance company as opposed to the employer, you are entitled to see out the benefit of it until you retire, return to work, uh, or, or uh, they say, actually die as well. So, it, th- this is why it's so difficult: is that there are so many different, different, um, different strands that has to be dealt with. Um, I am doing my own pet hate and what we try to avoid in the uh, top tips here is to talk about various cases. But it, it is such an important case at the moment. If you Google it, and I did last night, I think it runs to four pages of the, on the Google list of everything doing a commentary on this case. So it shows you how important the case has, has become. Uh, and there's different takes and what it's about. But this is the interesting point about when I said engagement with third parties. Miss Daly, she had a report from the National Rehabilitation Hospital, there was three reports from Medmark, there was an independent risk assessment, independent contractual or occupational therapist report, and the person spent one and a half days in the school ascertaining what a special needs teacher could and could not do. And it came to the conclusion that there were 16 duties attached to a special needs teacher. Now, Miss Daly was a special needs teacher and quite unfortunate, she was in a very bad accident and ended up paralyzed from the waist down. So there were certain things that she could do, but there were certain things she could never do, which was a lot of the physical duties. So a lady came in and Miss McGrath came in and she sat in a classroom for one and a half days and she worked out that there were 16 things that a special needs teacher could do. Nine, Miss Daly could wholly or partly do and seven she could never do. Now I'm deliberately highlighting the numbers because the numbers seem to have had an influence on the case because it was nine versus seven. Now I was practicing this presentation on my <laughs> wife last night and she was, um, um, this, this is my, my test audience, but I have to say to her, please audience, no questions till the end, <laughs> yeah. and no shaking your head. Um, she said to me straight away, Why, what if it was the opposite way around? I went, good point. What was it? What, if it was the opposite way around, if it was uh, nine duties that she should, she could not do and only seven that she could do, would the decision have been very much different? And the answer is, I don't know. But one of the things that has come up over and over again at the very start of all the, the case, when it went through the Labour Court and it went through the uh, the High Court, very quickly, Uh, Our legal representatives of the trade union initially said, Miss Daly's is fully fit for work. Miss Daly is fit to do the the majority of our job. And you can see probably such an unusual uh, uh, case where you're actually breaking down duties into into a percentage. Um, But it is an important point and I think we'll have to come back to it at a later stage. Um, here's the technical bit, this is what the case all re- resolved around, uh, which was an Employment Equality Act. She wanted to come back to work and the school said, sorry, you can't come back to work, we cannot accommodate you in the workplace. Now, there is some interesting features within the case. One of the main points of the case, there was a recurring and recurring theme, and it goes back to Avril's point of the danger or, how, or, or the need to be very careful when you engage with medical advisors. The doctor in Medmark had written three reports. Report one said she was fit to come back to work on foot of a risk assessment. Report two said, I've got a risk assessment, not really sure whether it's appropriate or not. I think you should get another risk assessment. So this is why there is this additional layer of risk assessments from occupational therapists. Report number three has a different ending. The doctor says, I have spoken to the school and Uh, sorry, he didn't say, I spoke to the school, he said, I deem her unfit for work, but he changed his mind because he spoke to the principal in the meantime. There is lots and lots of the cases dominated as what was said in the phone call between, and it was just a phone call, there was nothing in writing, what was the engagement between the principal and the doctor, and people have different versions of it. Who's right? Who's wrong? It's slightly irrelevant at the end because the one thing that did happen is that there was a change in the outcomes of the report from report 1 and 2 to report number 3 it is while it's not one of the key elements of the of the high court decision it is referenced on a number of occasions about what happened in during during the conversation but section 16 it, it is the game of two halves. There, it is quite a lengthy provision that's within the Act, but which says that nothing in this Act requires any person to retain an, a, an individual in a position if the individual is not fully competent and available to undertake the duties attached to that position, that position. It seems, on the face of it, really simple. Ms. Daly had 16 duties assigned to the SNA. There was no dispute that there were 16 duties if she could not do the 16 duties that's it i'm sorry but it's the end of it's it, it, it it's the end of uh, it's the end of your employment and we are entitled to engage someone else but there is a but associated with this section and this is what this case is dominated about a person who has a disability is considered fully competent if they can do their duties having been given reasonable accommodation. <coughs> reasonable accommodation is actually appropriate measures within the Act, and it flicks, flicks about. And it says, appropriate measures includes the adoption of premises, equipments, patterns of working time, and distribution of tasks. And all of the above is subject to a financial burden <coughs> test. And what means by that is, if you are the likes of Facebook or Google next door, you, you have, in the court's view, you have a higher obligation to make different adaptions to working time patterns and things, because you can afford it. Now, we've never actually seen a case that has probably come down to, I could do it, but it's just too expensive. I would have to, I'm a two-man, three-man, four-man operation. I'd have to change my building. I'd have to effectively render. I'd have to nearly hire someone else to help the person do the job. We very rarely see cases uh, that have come down to the, the brute financial element. While it's in And it is, if you want to call it a financial burden test, it's in the Act. We don't see it. It all comes down to accommodation. What can and cannot can can be accommodated. And what happened in the case is the school took a very narrow view. And then both the uh, labor court and the high court took a more expansive view. It has to be said, in the Equality Tribunal, Miss Daly lost her case. So round one, if you want to say in the WRC, she actually lost. When they went to the Labour Court, the Labour Court overturned the decision, very lengthy decision, and then she took the matter, um, the, the school took the matter to the High Court, who, confer, who again upheld the Labour Court's decision. So you have, if you want to have it in terms of a, in terms of a match, it was 2-1 to Miss, 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 Miss Daly. Um, the Labour Court has, is a very lengthy decision. And the interesting part about the, in, in that, at a WRC hearing recently, it was openly said by one of the adjudication officers to me that he, they are very conscious of the Nano Nagle case and what effectively the High Court has told and approved belonging to the, the to the Labour Court. So the school they took the position that they were not required to continue uh, to employ Miss Daly, as no matter what reasonable accommodation it did, she would never be able to do the job. So they had said there are seven duties here responsible uh, that as SNA that she cannot do, she'll never be able to do, she's therefore not fully competent. And if you want, they're looking at the front-loaded bit of the, um, of the definition, if you're not fully competent, you can't do your job. So they took the view, all duck, no dinner, it had to be all the 16 duties. If it's not, well, the Act says I can dismiss her. The Miss Daly said, no, you are wrong, you have to look at the role and not the person. This is where the case becomes very grey in that if you can't do, and there's a logic associated. Miss Daly, of course, could never do the seven, seven jobs. She was physically unable, the lady was in a wheelchair. The court held the view is that if you took the school's position that you have to do all 16, well, anyone with a disability can never be retained in employment because you'll just simply come out and say, look, Jared, there's 10 things that you need to do. You can't do all 10. There's three that you can never be able to do because of your physical ailment. I'm sorry, you'll just have to go. So they said that was completely illogical. But what they did say is that the seven tasks that she couldn't do should have, or the school should have looked at how they could be redistributed or, in fact, eliminated. They went as far to say, you don't have to give them away, you can actually say we're not going to do them anymore. Now one of the points that is uh, to be noted in this school, this school had 77 pupils, it had 27 special needs assistants, so she was one and there's 26 other people. The school or the court was was clearly given a, an undertone that could you not give these seven duties to one of the other, 20, to, to disperse them amongst 26. It does on the face of it say, does everyone have to take on that little bit more that is associated with miss daly 's duties to get her back in the school did answer the question and said there was issues the, the job she couldn 't do was a phys, was the physical piece of her job, and that they were asking staff to do actually more work, more physical work, and that that was going to be an issue it didn 't go that far within the within the uh, uh, within the court, nor was it meant to uh, as part of this case. Because they wanted to know whether or not, even by not considering, the disbursement of the of the roles was wrong. Miss Daly won; um, she won her high court case. Um, I'm not really sure whether she's returned back to, 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 to work or or not. Um, you wonder; it's probably difficult where you you litigated for that. But this is, and when I was doing my presentation for my wife, she went, "Ah, Jesus, what does this mean at the end?" And it's, she's right; it may. This was the what is the cart at the end. It may and may not be relevant to consider whether a point is reached where the appropriate measures transform the job into something entirely different from what, from that which originally existed. And the court ends very much on that end. Now if we go back to the bit at the start when we had the 16 duties and we had the nine that she could do and the seven that she couldn't do, now we're going to flick them around. Is this, the, is this the path that people should take and say, actually, the job which we started out with and the job which we are at now, even applying reasonable measures, has dipped below the 50%. I don't know what the answer is, and I think a lot of people don't know what the answer is because it's causing great confusion, but you have seen a judge said, yes, there is a tipping point in this scale. Uh, the, the concept of actually giving away or having to redistribute the, 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 or eliminate roles in its entirety. Uh, there has to be a point when it has to become unrealistic. Um, what should you do? The, because that's the obvious question. If we're after going through all the bad news of where 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 do cases end up and why is it so difficult? Employment engagement. This has to be by far and away the most employed, the most important thing. Um, you need to engage with the employee. You need to see, bring the employee. You need to meet the employee. One of the things that came up in this um, in this case was that Miss Daly complained that she didn't get a um, didn't get to comment on the medical reports. And one of the school's argument, which seems a logistic a logical argument, that said, "You're not a doctor. It didn't really matter <laughs> um, because only should only a medical expert comment on a medical report." There seems to be a logic associated with that idea, um, but. When it's probably personal to you, it would appear that you should be engaging. But the big thing that you would say is that employment engagement. The employer needs to understand the nature and extent of the disability. I would probably encourage that uh, not only a doctor, but if you have these occupational therapists who are a separate stream of people, you probably need to get into this granular detail, how many duties is there and how many the person can't or can't do. The 1697 that we've just gone through, it actually never got questioned anyway where we went along. It was simply said, that's what it is. Um, Can you accommodate the disability by eliminating or distributing some of the tasks to others? And that was the key thing that um, that the Board of Management fell down on in that, one, there was a report that it used belonging to a doctor, which had changed, but secondly, it didn't consider whether the 26 other SNAs would, would have taken up. And I suppose the important point is, because I probably have frightened all of you at this stage, but a bona fide belief that the employee is in, a bona fide belief, it doesn't have to be a, an absolutely 100%, but you have to wake up in the morning and say, I do believe that the person is genuinely on sick, uh, oh, sorry, unfit for the work. That's how it, uh, an o- employment equality case is dealt with. You can, of course, have an unfair dismissal case. So the employee can simply say, you know what, I don't like this employment equality. 9 out of 10 cases will go out the employment equality route because there is discrimination, there is disability discrimination, and they probably would see that as probably a more beneficial avenue for financial compensation would be an equality case. But you can go to the WRC. Uh, The WRC... Uh, which still looks at the rules, and and this case is 20, if not 25 years old, that in order for the employer for unfair dismissal, it must show that ill health was the substantial reason for the dismissal, that the employee receives fair notice, that their job is on the line, and the employee had been afforded opportunity of being heard. I mean, again, when you strip it back to the core, is this not what every single disciplinary, every single meeting with an employee for their job is being terminated? There is a series of engagements. Again, the, the big thing that comes out of all these cases is that if you try to do this over a week or two weeks or a month, there is lots of issues in relation to speed and time. You want to budget probably six months or so. My top tips, uh, as, uh, uh, as we conclude is you need to be very careful interacting with the medical medical experts. You saw in Avril's case, in the, the Laney versus the Central Bank case, um, the, um, people want to know what the doctor has been told. The doctor's view must be independent. That's what you need to, um, and you need to be careful. As happened in the, the Nano Nagel case, there was a phone telephone conversation, <clears throat> two, different, two different interpretations of, um, of, the, of a call. You need to have a good paper trail Obviously, you know, paper, t- you know, write, committing things into writing, et cetera, um, um, is, is a time consuming um, matter. But I think what you should do is take it and work backwards. You should always assume the worst. Maybe I need to get a bit more of a hobby, but we need to have a look at that. Cases will end up in towards quality tribunals. And if, for example, if in the nano case, and I, I hate to repeat it all the time, but if the doctor had engaged with the principal in writing, where would it have went and who, who would have known? Um, and then you need to involve the employee at all stages. And again, in, in, when you involve the employee, it's the same, while it's not a disciplinary meeting, you should be treating it in the context as if it was a disciplinary meeting by asking them, do they want to bring representation? Do they want to have minutes of the meetings? Because it's such a serious consequence. Because when, as I said, when the person leaves your employment, their possibility of being re-engaged Act in, in I suppose in full-time employment elsewhere. I mean, I mean full-time. You know, uh, back to the level they were pre-pre their disability or pre-pre pre, uh, any instant is very very small. So we have questions for Melanie and Avril. <laughs> Eleven
0: million days per annum. That is in Ireland alone. That is enormous. Um. There are a few new faces in the room this morning and what I didn't say at the beginning, what I should have said is our challenge and our objective for our top tip sessions is to give you some very practical information and to give you some tips that you might be able to take away and implement in your own organisations. I have just two additional comments or observations in relation to things that Avril and Ger said. Um, Over the last seven, eight, nine, ten years, the occupational health space in Dublin has grown. So we now have uh, specialist occupational health medical practices, so Med, uh, Medmark, MedWise, Corporate Health Ireland, and they specialise in reviewing employees for organisations. And Avril um, <coughs> and Jair are absolutely right, you have to, you have to give them information. Um, And because it's very easy to fill in their online request for uh, an appointment for an employee who's out sick and not actually think about what you're doing, which I actually think is one of the biggest problems with sending people for medicals. Um, Give them the information that they need to know. Give them a copy of the person's job description if you have one. If you don't, maybe an idea in, in an objective way on the basis that it'll have to be shared or may have to be shared, give them information. Um, we uh, last year asked one of these corporate health practices to come down and talk to the team, um, because we were getting frustrated as practitioners, as I'm sure many of you are, with the medical reports that says that said things like overwhelming symptoms and illness and and, and, and those those medical reports are no good to matter beast because you don't know what to do with them. So we asked one of the practices to come down and talk to us, and in fairness. They did, and they talked to us a lot about the challenges they have with the advice that they're getting from the, um, uh, the Irish, the, I, I, it wasn't the IMO, it was the Medical Council, um, and that the Medical Council have been very, very clear with all medical practitioners about what information they can share with employers without the consent of the employees. Now, the occupational health practices are better about getting the necessary consent. But they don't always get it. And as Aval says, you can tweak and adapt your policies so that you say things like, Well if your medical certs and your medical reports don't give us the information that we need, we won't give you sick pay. But you have to you have to kind of approach that with some flexibility because it can be a little bit harsh. And you are expected, as Jared says, a bit like Sheep and Lassie, you're expected to bend over backwards. Um, and there's no hiding behind that. Um, So, medical reports, think about the Medmarks and the Corporate Health Mm Ireland and the MedWise, and we're not going to recommend one or the other, Um, we've had good and bad experiences with all of them, I think it's fair to say, Um, so that's the first thing, and then the second thing is permanent health insurance, so many organisations have permanent health insurance, long term disability cover, it's got lots of different names, some organisations don't, Um, Large organisations, and particularly some of the uh, US headquartered ones, um, have headcount issues. So, while they have permanent health insurance schemes, they are worried about the fact that an individual, even though they might be on permanent health insurance or long term disability scheme, there's still a headcount in their space. And it frustrates them no end that we say to them, well, you can't terminate. If to terminate them would deprive them uh, of the benefit of the long term disability cover, the permanent health insurance. Um, it's interesting because over the last few years our experience is that the insurers and and maybe this will change, maybe it's not everybody's experience but I think it's probably the team's experience, the insurers tend to let individuals onto the scheme where they set the models they apply, particularly where it's kind of stressed or something like that but after two or three months on the scheme certainly what I've seen and what we've seen is that they then very actively start to manage them, they start sending the stress cases to psychiatrists. I had one last month, three psychiatrists they had sent the individual to, three. And they had three psychiatrists say that the individual, while they might not have been ready to go back to their work in Mason, Hayes and Curran, wasn't us, but they were certainly fit to go and do something and they were using that as an excuse to offload the person off the scheme. And that brings it to a head. So sometimes a little bit of patience, knowing that that might happen, Um, down the line is worth thinking about and the other thing that we've seen in the last couple of years that I certainly never saw before is the insurers going to the employer and saying okay Melanie Crowley's never coming back to work and she's going to be on our insurance scheme forever, here's 200 grand, here's 250 grand, go and see can you do a deal with her and we we will stump up for it. That's not something I saw 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago and it is something that we've come across a few times um, relatively recently.